Directed energy, lasers, somehow have always been the weapon of the future. Military-grade lasers are either too heavy or require too much power to be practical. Booz Allen Hamilton thinks its engineers have answers for high-energy lasers. The company has a new unit called Hellworks to bring it all together. Here with more, Hellworks CEO Joe Shepard. Mr. Shepard, good to have you on. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. And Hellworks stands for High Energy Laser Works. And tell us what the company does. Do you design, do you build, or do you just create use cases? So we are an innovative developer of HEL weapon systems, right, that balance the need for power with the need for mobility in the modern battle space, right? In essence, we're putting HELs where they've never fit before for DOD. What is the essential engineering problem? I've seen military lasers, prototypes and operations, and sometimes they're so they're almost like hypersonic launch units. They're so big you can't see how they could possibly be practical on board a tank, even a ship. Right. So the challenge, you know, boils down to a single statement is size, weight, and power, right? So the ability to fit these laser weapon systems on platforms that have operational relevance or to get them just in a configuration that makes sense for the warfighter, right? So to your point, you know, traditionally these systems have been big and clunky um, by design in many cases because we're building prototypes of a relatively nascent technology. Now we're focused on getting these things operational and in the hands of the warfighter, you know, in a relevant way. And so Hellworks is really focused on that size, weight, and power problem. Because you can get a laser into the size of a big pen, which people use on PowerPoint presentations, but that can't kill anybody if you aim it at them. How do you get sufficient power for military applications and still shrink the physical size of the uh, of the generator and the unit. Sure. So there's a couple of things that you need to focus on there. One is ensuring that you have the right power match to the target set that you're trying to go after, right? Not overpowering the system for something that may be a little more addressable, like a drone or a rocket artillery and mortar, right, which seems to be the sweet spot right now for DOD in terms of the use of lasers. So one would be to get that power relevant and appropriate. Secondly, it's really focusing on what's the runtime that you need for the laser to be effective. And then that allows you to scale the power required, right, to generate that light and how much heat you then have to dissipate, right, which is the thermal management problem of these systems. So You know, Hellworks is focused on those two things almost primarily, you know, appropriate power levels, right, in in the application of power in the laser, and then, you know, innovative thermal thermal management capability that allows us to get it small and compact enough to be relevant. Yes, because the laser that I saw at your alma mater, the Dahlgren Naval Surface Warfare Center, cut through pretty thick steel at fairly close range. In the case of shooting down a drone, a drone is not made of steel that thick. It's probably made of plastic or some kind of a composite material or very thin aluminum. So therefore, you wouldn't need that kind of power, just enough to cut the drone in half or make a hole in it and so it crashes, correct? That's right, Tom. So has the military been concentrating too much on a great big thing that can sink a tank a mile away when they should be looking at sinking what's essentially a toy-like thing at a few hundred yards? Well, I think it's a timing issue, right? So we've spent a number of years on, you know, what I like to coin tech maturation, right? Focusing on ensuring that the technology is relevant, you know, that the problems of the physics of lasers and all the things that go along with it from a tech perspective are solved. And so we've gotten to that point. I think we're to the point now where we are technology rich and both funding policy 
and, you know, swap poor, if you will. So now is the time to start focusing on getting these things in an operational configuration that makes sense. And, you know, to DOD's credit, the last couple of years, they've taken strides to ensure that we're taking operational prototypes and getting those things rapidly fielded so that we can feel out the viability of these AGL systems, right? Because there's still a lot of skepticism, as you would expect, in a nascent market like directed energy but the more we deploy and the more we learn about them, I think the less skeptics we'll have. We're speaking with Joe Shepard. He's president and CEO of Hellworks, a Booz Allen Hamilton company. And there's also the issue of integrating the platforms into the striker, into the whatever the platform that the military is using. That's a huge issue for anything they develop. Do you work with them on the issue of integrating it with the platform so that it's supportable in the field? Yes. So we you know, have two products in our portfolio that really align nicely to that striker vehicle. One is the high energy laser mission equipment package or referred to as HELMEP, which is getting a laser weapon system into and onto the striker vehicle in complement to the existing kinetic weapons. So the Army has been focused on program they call MSHORAD, or Mobile Short Range Air Defense, and it has several increments. The first increment was a purely kinetic weapon-based effector, and the DEM SHORAD for increment two was a pure play directed energy platform. Where Hellworks is focused is we are working with two companies, Moog and Blue Halo, to bring to that platform a capability that allows you to put an HEL weapon on the platform platform in complement with the kinetic effectors on that platform. And what we also were able to do because of our small size, weight, and power application uh, through our light engine technology, we were able to bring a powered and cooled laser and put it inside the striker completely under armor. So when you look at what most services have done to this point on these small tactical vehicles, is there's typically components of the HEL system that's exposed either to the environment or to the threat, like small guns and other things. We've taken the entire weapon system laser and put it inside the striker under armor, which is a game changer for the Army. And just out of curiosity, for purposes of volume and pricing, are there any commercial applications for this type of technology? So a lot of the solid-state lasers, right, the fiber lasers that are the essence of these systems are, in fact, industrial lasers. They are used for welding. They have medical applications at much lower powers. So, you know, at the, at the pure source, the lasers themselves have commercial application. A laser weapon system is a weapon system, you know, not necessarily a commercial application per se, certainly as policy goes, but the core source of a laser weapon system certainly has commercial application. There are commercial components in it, in other words. There are many commercial components in a laser weapon system, for sure. And what about the electronic supply? Are you able to get the proper supplies there, given everything we've heard about the chip shortage and so on? Certainly. So, so far, so good. So we'll keep our fingers crossed, right? So from Hellworks perspective, uh, what we've needed from the supply chain generally has been available. I think everyone is experiencing delays, especially in microelectronics and, and other core components. And I think that that's a trend we will continue to have to monitor. But the way I think most appropriately to defeat that concern is to build up the supply chain for some of the, the commercial and cost components that exist in these HEL weapons systems 
And the best way to do that is to deploy more of the system so that we can get this more commoditized across DOD, which will actually, you know, help increase the supply chain. And just a final question, what's your sense of the time between now and when there might be volume acquisitions of these types of systems by the military to put on, you know, 100 different vehicles? Yeah, so I think the timing is really good. You see nearly every service focused on directed energy applications and fielding those rapid prototypes. And I think the more successful we are in getting them out in the field and getting the, the, the warfighter more comfortable with the use of these weapons as a complement to their existing kinetic effectors, I think it's, it's, a, it's a very short matter of time before we start to see much more use of directed energy applications and the cost trade, right? The ability to put uh, effect on a target at a much lower cost than a kinetic weapon is really going to be the driving factor. So once we can overcome the skepticism of the use of directed energy, I think you'll see it uh, much more prolific across DOD. Pretty soon we'll hear charge of the phasers in real life and not just in the movies. Pew, pew. <laughs> All right. Joe Shepard is CEO and president of Hellworks, a Booz Allen Hamilton company. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say like a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.